This is Jason Kelly with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. And today we have episode 239 for September 27th, 2021. And we've got an interview today with the wonderful and informative Jason Kelly from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And today we're going to talk about the Apple child safety features that they were set to deliver on iOS 15 this week, or last week, I guess now. And of course, I talked about this at length when this was first announced a few weeks ago, uh, but I really wanted to talk to somebody from the EFF about this. And Jason was the perfect person to talk to. And we really kind of dug into the whole issue of, you know, CSAM, child sexual abuse material, how much of a problem that really is, what sort of problem that really is, and how other companies have tried to address this to date, and then how Apple kind of came up with a different angle on it that, uh, that caused quite an uproar. And they basically have backed down, or at least so far. So anyway, we're going to get into all of that today. Just a couple quick things before we get into the interview. Uh, first of all, iOS 15, where these features were to debut, did come out. And it's uh, out there waiting for you right now if you've got an iPhone or an iPad and you haven't upgraded yet. Uh, I just upgraded my phone now. and I'm going to do my iPad here shortly. Uh, I haven't had any issues. I haven't read about any super major issues. There actually were some really good security fixes in iOS 15. So for that reason alone, you might want to go ahead and update. Uh, you know, whenever there's a big update like this, there's always some glitches. So obviously nothing is ever 100% safe, but go ahead and upgrade. I think if you haven't already, I think it's safe to do that. I haven't yet upgraded my computers to Monterey, the latest uh, Mac OS update, but I'll probably go ahead and do that this weekend. I haven't heard about any major issues there either. So next week's news show, I'm actually going to talk, one of the things I'll talk about next week as part of the news will be some of the really cool privacy and security features that come with those updates. Now, even though this isn't a news show, I'm actually going to read a little bit of an article for you before we start this interview, because I think it's a really good setup for our talk today about these, these features. So this is a short article from 9to5Mac, and it says... Apple giving into Russia twice this week on key civil liberties issues proves that the company's CSAM misuse assurances cannot be trusted, argues a high-profile security expert. Apple today pulled from the App Store an opposition tactical voting app after the Russian government threatened specific local company employees with punishment if they refused. It turns out that Apple also turned off its private relay service in Russia just yesterday, which uh, this was written September 17th likely also in response to government pressure. When Apple announced its plans to scan iPhones for child sexual abuse materials, or CSAM, many pointed out that exactly the same technology could be used to scan phones for things like political content by opponents of repressive governments. Security experts, civil rights groups like mm, EFF, Democratic governments, and even Apple's own employees called on the company to abandon its plans for this reason. Apple responded by saying that it would never allow this. It would, it said, only search for image hashes in at least two different child safety organization databases. Addressing the issue of a repressive government forcing it to search for particular materials, Apple said it would, quote, refuse such demands, unquote. But it also states that it obeys the laws in each of the countries in which it operates, and commenters said that the pressure could be applied to the company even in the absence of such laws. As much as Apple claims it would never get into government pressure to misuse its CSAM scanning feature, cryptographic academic Matthew Green, who I have long wanted to have on this show, but can't seem to reach, argues that the company just proved these assurances are worthless. And this is a quote from Matthew Green. He says, Apple spent the entire summer telling the public that they were confident they could resist government pressure when defending their CSAM scanning system. Today, they're pulling voting guides for the Russian App Store. What changed in a month? Unquote. Apple's defense of removing voting guides is that they have to obey the laws of nations they operate in. And yet, if legislators demand they expand their image scanning corpus, they say they will refuse. They intend to break the law in that case, but not this one? A Russian journalist replied saying, that's not all. And this is a quote from him. He says, it doesn't stop there. Yesterday, they turned their new private relay quasi-VPN service off for Russians, even though it worked fine in the iOS beta versions. Plus, there's still hundreds of RU, which is Russia, IP addresses reserved for it. No explanation given, unquote. The article goes on for a little bit, but I think that says what we need to say here. So, basically, let's keep that in mind 
uh, as we talk about the subject today with Jason Kelly. So let's get to our interview right now. Jason Kelly guides EFF's social media tactics, develops EFF's online digital advocacy, and writes about various forms of governmental and private surveillance and tracking. Welcome back to the show, Jason. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And we've got a, a hot button issue for you, something that I talked about on the show a couple weeks ago. And Apple has come out with these, actually a trio of, of, of technologies that they were going to be delivering with iOS 15, which is now currently set to come out next week. Uh, that caused quite the furor at EFF and other places. And so we are going to talk about some of those today, even though those plans have been somewhat postponed. And we'll get into all that today. But we've uh, I really wanted to bring somebody else to talk about this, and you are a perfect person to talk to. So, Yeah, great. No, I'm excited to do this. Yes, me too. But let's start with the basics, just to put everybody on a good footing here. So first of all, how big of a problem is child sexual abuse material, CSAM? Is it obviously it's a horrific practice in general, but, you know, just from a statistics standpoint, like how bad is it and how much do we know about how this whole market operates? Yeah. Great, great question. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that, gosh, I mean, this is such a horrific topic and one instance is too many. So I'm going to, I'm going to name some numbers and and they're going to be big and it's, it's going to be hard to fathom but it's it's worth digging into what these numbers actually represent mm. because sometimes they're reported in ways that make it seem like the problem which is a serious problem is actually much bigger than it is mm. so mm-hmm. to start i want to just separate out a couple of different types of problems that young people have so csam is is the is the first problem child sexual abuse materials a serious issue. And I'll get into some numbers about that. And I just want to separate that out from a different issue, which is grooming and sexploitation, which happens online as well. And the reason I bring both of those two things up is that Apple has multiple features that it's introduced and, or that it plans to introduce. And they tackle these two problems in different ways. So we'll be talking a lot about the CSAM solution or intended solution, but there is a separate issue, which is a, you know, a growing problem with, with, young people interacting with strangers online in a way that, you know, gets them, gets them in trouble in various ways that could in theory lead to CSAM and the production of CSAM, but that's not primarily the, the, the progenitor of, of that problem. So just to give you some numbers to it, the national center for missing and exploited children is kind of the quasi governmental entity that does a lot of the work in this, in this realm around CSAM so they report things to the government and then the government, you know, acts on them in theory um, and they get reports from uh, service providers, everyone from Facebook to Google to, to Apple even now. Mm. And Nick Nick puts out stats that show kind of what information they're getting. And just to give you a sense. So in 2020, 70 million images and videos of CSAM were reported to Nick Nick. Oh my. Yeah. It's a, <sighs> Shocking, shocking oh, number. Good Lord, um, yeah. And and if you look around, what you'll probably see is that those reports, that the number of reports that they're getting has increased exponentially almost in the last decade. And the reason for that is that it's 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 not that there's significantly more CSAM being produced. There may be more being shared, but the real problem, the, the real uh, societal thing they're tracking here is just the number of companies that are reporting it mm. and the way this, that they're reporting it. So you might go back a few years and see, you know, 6 million reports. And now you see uh, Facebook reported more than 21 million CSAM images in 2020. But that's because Facebook is more thoroughly looking for it in a way that they weren't in the past. Okay. And are those are those unique instances, or or could those some of those reports be for the same material? That's a great question. Yeah, I would say that the vast majority of those are duplicates, not okay. necessarily you know one picture that's right. <laughs> shared twenty one right. million times. Right. But to give you a sense of the data that Nick Nick has, so seventy million images report and videos reported, twenty some million images specifically. If we're just l- focusing on images. Uh, in 2020, NCMEC only has 4 million distinct hashes mm, in their database. Okay. So, you know, and you can think All of right, a hash yep. as a photo. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot fewer 
individual instances or images, or let's say, you know, unfortunately, like children than it is reports. The report, the reporting numbers are much higher than the individual instances. And then just to drill down further, I think it's important to know that, so you've got these 21 million images reported or so last year and 70 million when it goes, when you combine images and videos, but how does that track to individual arrests, right? Mm. So Nick Mick gets these reports and, and you wonder what happens to them. Yeah. So the, de- the Department of Justice's Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force arrested about 9,000 people last year. And so if you can kind of pull away from those two numbers or, or compare them together, it suggests that something like one investigation for every if you're going to say 70 million reports happened, then one investigation happens for every 700 reports. And there's like maybe one arrest for every 7,000 reports. Hmm. So it's important to note that like a report to NCMEC doesn't equal an investigation. Hmm. And in many cases, the report to NCMEC or even just NCMEC's awareness of the, let's say, user on a platform is actually just an assist for law enforcement, which already has an awareness sometimes of an individual who's suspected, right? So it helps them get probable cause from the law enforcement angle. So it's, I could go on about this forever. It's super interesting, like how many, I mean, yeah. when I say interesting, I certainly don't <sighs> right, want right. people to think that they, that I mean good, right, but right. like, this is actually a really hard thing to track. You know, when you ask how much CSAM is produced, you know, there's, it's actually really difficult to know that answer. Um, Nick Mick tracks reports. They don't track very clearly uh, outcomes of like what those reports lead to down downwind in law enforcement. And obviously a lot of this happens in the dark. So we know it's a big problem, but whenever you hear these numbers, you have to kind of dig in and say, okay, 70 million reports, 9,000 arrests, something like that is kind of what we're talking about in a year. Gotcha. So we've talked about how NICMEC came about and what kind of stuff they've got in their database. So without making me throw up in my mouth, uh, <laughs> what, what sort of criteria criteria are there when we're trying to determine what belongs in this database? And and I guess also, I'm just curious, and maybe I don't want to know, but I'm going to ask anyway, what, what are the age ranges we talk about here. Is it a lot of this material, like we're talking 16, 17 year olds that just are just under the wire kind of thing. And they, they qualify because they're not, they're minors or is it worse than that demographically? That's yeah, that's a good question. Um, so any, anyone under 18 could end up any, any photo of a person who's under 18 could end up in, in Nick Nick's database. The statistics on CSAM are, my my recollection is that teenagers tend to be more common, okay. you know, for better or for worse. Right, um, right. But but yeah, it's so Nick Mick, the way Nick Mick gets these, Nick Mick has a lot of different sources for the data that they have. They, they, they get these photos sometimes from detectives. They get them, you know, from law enforcement that's completed a, an investigation, they get them in a lot of different ways, and and they also get them from service providers that might report something. Although the vast majority of reports from service providers are because they match something that's already in the database. So most of the time, they're not um, reporting a new photo mm. on, let's say, that was shared on Facebook. Okay. So every week, basically, the people at NCMEC review tens of thousands of photos. Now, when I say review, a lot of this happens automatically, thankfully, you know, if it's being compared to something in the, in the previous, that's already in the database. With a computer, you mean, as opposed to by human eyes. That's right. right. Yeah. So it's being, it's being compared to something that's already in the database. And what they check for are basically three things, whether the, the people in the video are children uh, or appear to be children, whether they're being subjected to sexual abuse in the photos, and if they've previously been identified by law enforcement as victims. Hmm. And, and that's in the case of, you know, getting those reports from some service providers. If they get those reports from law enforcement, then they already know the answer to some of these questions. Um, so it's it's hard to say what's in this database. It's, it's you know, for, I think, probably for the better, it's, it's relatively secure. Hmm. <laughs> we don't know what these pictures are. Right. But, you know, it, it ranges, I think, from 
what you can imagine to much, much worse than that that's been, been collected. And, and Nick Mick's been collecting these photos for decades now, is my understanding. And, and like I mentioned, they've got about 4 million of them in the database at this point. I assume that there's some sort of international cooperation among other groups outside the U.S. for this sort of material as well. well how, do you know anything about how that works? Does Nick Mick get input from other countries as well? Because I'm sure some of these things are shared internationally. It's not, it's not all contained within the U.S. So is there... Is there a broader international version of NICMIC or some other network that allows them to share this information? Yeah, that's a good question. They do get reports from outside of the U.S. I'm not sure how much of their database contains information that came from or photos that came from outside the U.S., but there are similar clearinghouses for this yeah. kind of problem in other countries. And, and it's actually, it's, a rel- it's pretty relevant to your to, to this overall story, one of the things that Apple announced while they were trying to appease people who were concerned about um, some of the issues that their features brought up, one of the things that Apple announced is I think a change to what they had originally planned was that they would only uh, look for photos that are in multiple databases, multinational databases. So in many cases, these databases, it's not that they're shared necessarily, but they do contain some of the same uh, mm. content. And so if you've got a database in the UK or the European database, which I think is what Apple said they would, they would use, they'd be essentially making sure, trying to ensure that there weren't any false positives by not just using whatever is in NCMEC's database, which of course is already fairly thoroughly vetted, but also adding a secondary kind of stop by comparing that to another database and, and using that smaller set of photos that exist in both databases. Gotcha. Yeah, and that, yeah, that will certainly come up when we talk a little bit later about some of the other knock-on effects of this. So one of the, one of the things that about this whole issue is there's a lot of confusion around yeah you know, how these photos are are scanned and matched, like what that process is. Can you and, and they you know they call it a fingerprint or you, you call it a neural hash, which is their Apple's technical name yeah. for this. But there's an older technology that Microsoft, I think, came up with a long time ago, similar to that they've been using. Um, so could you describe a little bit about how that works? And, and I'll preface this with saying, you know, what happens if someone crops the picture? Because it, normally when you take a hash or something, a cryptographic hash, it has to be bit for bit the exact same. So if you were to even change the coloring slightly or make it black and white or crop a little bit, it would be cryptographically, that's a totally different hash. So this is a different, fundamentally a different mechanism for fingerprinting. So if you could explain how does that work? And then the other common question people had was, well, how do, does it, is this going to catch me taking pictures of my kid in my bathtub? <laughs> yeah, great question. To answer that question, no. But that's simply because of the way that this feature works, which is to say that it it only searches for photos that are already existing. So these photos that are in NickMix database, it'd be very, I mean, frankly, it's like one in a billion that they would match a photo that you took of your of your child. Um, because the way the the cryptographic hashing works is essentially, if you could imagine, uh, let's picture uh, your favorite picture of a cat, okay? And so we can get away from some of the mm-hmm. unfortunate imagery we have to talk about right. to have this conversation. So you've got a picture of a cat and you, um, first of all, you start by getting rid of the color. So you make it black and white. Um, and then you divide that picture up into, into grids and into, you know, different squares. So it's got, I don't know how many, but let's say it's got now a thousand little squares. You just overlay okay. a table on top of it. And what the software does, what the algorithm does, from my understanding, is it, it and this is, this is basically true for both Apple's system that they've planned and the previous system that's very common called photo DNA. Hmm. So in each of those squares now, you've got a small essentially black and white image, right? It's not the full image. It's a tiny version, a tiny portion of it. And if you just check the the kind of color of that, the the shading level, let's say it's on a scale of zero to 10, how dark is is that square? And you say, okay, it's a five. And then you go all the way through all the squares on the picture. And that means that you've got a five and you've got a two and you've got a three then, and you, you create this long number. And that number corresponds then to that, what that image's hash is. Hmm. And then if you have another image that looks similar, but the shading is slightly different once it's been converted to black and white, 
it won't match that image. So with PhotoDNA, which is the, the software that Microsoft originally made and then donated to NCMEC, which NCMEC then makes available to all sorts of different uh, law enforcement agencies and service providers, you can miss a lot if an image is cropped, if an image is altered in various ways. PhotoDNA is, is basically not very good at what I would call fuzzy matching. Mm. So it has trouble with those changes. So if you can imagine trying to alter, you know, a thousand photos by, uh, I don't know, cutting them all in half, it's likely that PhotoDNA wouldn't recognize them because now they have a totally different cryptographic hash or, or whatever you want to call it. But again, it's, it, it's only going to get, so, so the matching isn't perfect and it's certainly not going to pick up a photo that um, you took of your three-year-old who was being really funny in the bathtub. That's, mm. that's not going to get you noticed by photo DNA or in this case by Apple's announced plan for like when you actually take a picture of your, your son and it goes up to iCloud. You're not going to get dinged for that. Right. Okay. So the key there is, is that these are all, the matching is done against known existing CSAM images. Uh, and so the only way that your random photo of your kid at home would, would even have a chance of matching is for some reason if it happened to look almost identical to something else that someone else took that was child abuse, uh, which is probably not likely. Exactly. Many companies, including Apple, are already scanning uh, our, you know, our communications and documents for CSAM before Apple even announced it. So it's not a new thing. So, you know, what comp what can you tell us about what companies are already doing today prior to Apple's thing? But so what prior to this announcement, what was already going on and what were they scanning for? What, what had existed prior to Apple's announcement? This is a fairly common technology at this point. So, you know, again, Microsoft made this software called PhotoDNA. It, it, it ended up in NickMick's hands. NickMick said, the more people that use this, the better. So companies from Gmail or Google's Gmail to Twitter, to Facebook, to Reddit, all use photo DNA at some level. So what that might mean on Facebook, which again uh, announced or, or reported uh, that they had 20 something million reports to NCMEC, what's happening there is if you're in a Facebook group and someone shares a photo that NCMEC has in its database, Facebook automatically scans that photo turns it, well, essentially this, this all happens in the background in the cloud, but Facebook looks at that photo, turns it into a hash, compares it to the hash that is already in NCMEC's database. That's what photo DNA does. And then they can report either to NCMEC or they can eliminate the user's account or whatever mm. result they want to have. But everyone does this. I mean, this is a like, if you look at the list of companies that have reported to NCMEC in 2020, I would, I would guess that the vast majority of them are using photo DNA. It's, it's free, you know, theoretically it works. It checks against these specific problematic images and you've got everything from Amazon using it uh, very likely to um, Dropbox had 20,000 reports to NCMEC. I, we aren't sure that Dropbox is using it, but one can imagine. Mm. We, we do know that Dis Discord uses it. So essentially if you're putting a photo online uh, in a cloud service or you're sending a photo to someone over a non-end-to-end -end encrypted platform, D photo DNA is very likely scanning that photo. And my understanding was even, even Apple, prior to this announcement, Apple was already scanning attachments to emails. That's right. Yeah. Apple was using, I, I'm not sure if they were using photo DNA. I, mm. I'm going to assume that they were because I didn't know anything about neural, uh, neural hashing before right. this. But yeah, in 2020, Apple... Uh, reported 265 notices of CSAM or, or incidences of CSAM, which were most likely from being shared via email in, in Apple Mail. So, so Apple already did this. Again, it's important to note that email is not encrypted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, one, it's not, it's not exactly a privacy violation on the same scope right. to say you've sent an email to someone, it's plain text, it has an image attached. So yeah, this is happening all over the place. And this is, and it's been growing considerably, the number of organizations and companies that use photo DNA, which is why if you look at Nick McData, you'll see the, this skyrocketing uh, list of, of reports to Nick Mc, uh, because 
you know, 10 years ago, the software might not have existed. Five years ago, fewer people were using it and fewer people were using Facebook. And you just add those numbers together and suddenly now we're at 70 million a year. All right. So now we're caught up. Let's let's talk about what Apple proposed to it because this really did set off a firestorm. <laughs> and yeah, so they were set to deliver a new mechanism. It was, it was fundamentally different in at least a couple different ways for scanning for CSAM on Apple devices. And it was going to come with iOS 15, which is due next week. And they announced it, what, a month ago or something like that, and then got immediate pushback. So walk us through what their proposal is and why it was, how it was different and, and why it got such uh, the blowback that it did. Yeah, this is really the meat of the question here. Um, and we've been spending a lot of time at EFF trying to answer this exact question. So I could do it for a long time, but I'll try to make <laughs> it brief. Um, so a couple of main differences between what Apple is planning to do and what other companies do are that to start, Apple is doing this on your device. So what that means is that if you download iOS 15 to whatever uh, iPhone, tablet, et cetera, device you have, it will include an encrypted version of the NCMEC database. Uh, now, again, that's not photos. That's the those, those numbers mm-hmm. that correspond the to photos. So exactly. The fingerprints will be on your device and they won't be accessible to you. I mean, you know, there's always a security risk when something like this ends Mm -hmm. up on your device that someone could add, you know, malicious entries to it or or various things. But, But for all intents and purposes, that's not really the concern. The concern here is, so you've got this new database that's sitting on your device. And when you take a photo with your, let's just use iPhone in this example, with your iPhone, you're fine. That's not going to be scanned unless you use iCloud which I would imagine the vast majority of iPhone mm. users do. Yep. You know, iCloud, it's the feature that lets us talk to people over iMessage from our, our Macs and from multiple devices. It lets us look at our photos online. Right. It lets yeah. us look at them, you know, on different devices. And they push that feature really hard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's If you go through the normal procedure for getting an iPhone, it's very likely that if you follow Apple's instructions, you're using iCloud. So you could just turn it off, uh, but it actually is a serious, you know, inconvenience for many people to do that. So you've got this database and your photos scanned against it on your device. So photo DNA, which is what that uh, most of the other companies use, works in the cloud. The photo is kind of compared to those NCMEC database photos in the cloud. Here, this is happening directly on your device. Now, that's a technological requirement, right? That's, sorry, that's that's not a technological requirement. That's right. a, a policy requirement. So right. there's no reason down the road that Apple couldn't say, oh, we're actually going to scan every photo that you take. But you can see their, their reasoning here. If you're sharing it to iCloud, that's a way you can share it to other people. Um, you could make an iCloud album of you know your favorite cats or what have you. In this case, a terrible mm. iCloud album um, of the worst things you can imagine. And you could share that. You could send that link to someone. They can download it. So this is happening on your device before your photos go to the cloud. And that major difference has, has been you know, kind of much discussed that mm. it's on your device. Yeah. I think... It's a little bit of a red herring to be so concerned about that. I think it is a concern, but the reason Apple did that isn't because they think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not because they're trying to do something sneaky. I think there are two reasons that Apple's scanning these things on your device. The first is that we think it's very likely that Apple's going to encrypt iCloud backups mm-hmm. down the road. They're not currently end-to-end encrypted. Right. And once they do that, they won't be able to scan those photos once they're in the cloud. So Apple's getting ahead, we think, of its own announcement down the road so that they can introduce this feature that does the thing. And then they can still introduce this supposedly privacy protective, which it would be, feature of encrypting your backups, uh, which currently aren't encrypted. Right. Um, so if you, if you scan it on the device, then you don't have a conflict there. The second thing that, that's different is that it, it is a little bit more, I would say that Apple deserves a lot of credit for making a, a more privacy protective in many ways version of photo DNA. Neural hash is better in a lot of different ways. 
it, it has a threshold that they've set so that you don't get a report sent to NCMEC unless you reach a threshold, which they've said is 30. Mm-hmm. And that's to kind of eliminate the likelihood that you've accidentally downloaded three or four photos in like a giant collection mm-hmm. and didn't know mm-hmm. that one of them was, was CSAM. Now, if there were a malicious actor who was trying to get you reported to NCMEC, that 30, 30 photo threshold doesn't stop them. They can just add 31 photos, right? right. But it does eliminate the number of false positives um, in, the, in the random case where you've accidentally got such a picture on your phone. The other kind of, there's some fancy stuff that they do with the cryptography because of the way it's it's set up. The, your photos remain encrypted. Like Apple never actually has to look at them. They're not uploading them to a database other than the iCloud, which of course is their database, but they're not uploading them to a photo DNA database somewhere for just the purpose of this. So it's, for example, one of the, a similar feature that Apple has that's on your device is the facial recognition feature that lets you unlock your newer iPhones just by looking at them. Mm-hmm. Apple does all that on the device and that's for privacy reasons. Um, they don't collect all that biometric data and then share it anywhere. And in many ways, this is a similar, there's a similar goal here. And then the last thing, so I, I'm, I'm kind of puffing up Apple here because they deserve a little bit of kudos. Yeah. Um, the, the last thing is that they're, hashing feature is a little bit better than photo DNA. I mentioned earlier that photo DNA doesn't really have fuzzy matching. Neural hash is built a little bit differently and it kind of does. So um, the best way to, uh, <laughs> our technologist who's been focused on this, Erica Portnoy gave me an example of when you're, um, if you're adding an image to um, a, a Google doc or a Word doc, it kind of snaps into place sometimes, like depending on where you put it, it mm. like wants you to, it like moves it to the right place. Neural hash kind of does that for, for these photos. So it has a way of kind of determining if a photo has been altered and recognizing that mm. it has been, but it's it's actually the same. I can't give you any more detail on that because I don't understand it. <laughs> right, well, and it's proprietary, um, right? I don't, th- I don't think they've released it on exactly. purpose. So um yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we have the information they've put out in, in white papers and there's, you know, a report that it's been, that, that someone's kind of gotten the details of how it works. But in general, yeah, the, the like many things, Apple, we don't actually know a lot about it except what they've told us. All right. So here's the thing about this that, that I think got me, and I think this might be at the root of why other people got upset too. And I'm curious to know whether or not this is something that you've guys debated it uh, with any FF. And that to me is my, my device that I bought from Apple to me is sacrosanct. And, and they have made a big marketing push of, you know, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. This, this technique basically defeats end-to-end uh, encryption, end-to-end encryption, because with end-to-end encryption, it's it's encrypted between the two endpoints, but at the endpoints, it must be decrypted. Otherwise, I couldn't read the message or see the picture or whatever the case may be. So the, what I've worried about as a technologist who follows privacy is that that is going to be the solution that governments are going to figure out that they're going to ask for because they've, they've been trying to hamper encryption for decades. They've been trying to have back doors. They've been trying to weaken it. They've been trying to do all these things. And we, well, technologists have successfully pushed back against that. So the next phase, the next angle would be to, okay, you can have your strong encryption, but we want a bug placed on the phone. Basically, we want you to subvert the device before it's encrypted or after it's decrypted, depending on how you look at it. Uh, And then I want you to uh, send me that. I want you to tattle on somebody because I'm going to install a spy on your device. I personally, I think that is why this was fundamentally different and why a lot of people freaked out. Is that something that you guys discussed inside EFF at all? I I think you're exactly right. I mean, one of the, one of the main issues here is, and Apple will admit this, they did announce multiple things at the same time and the things kind of function differently. So This instance we're talking about um, specifically with iCloud photo matching to NCMEC database is a real concern for a lot of reasons. I would say the biggest is that it doesn't take much to change 
well, let's say to add new hashes to that mm-hmm. database, if you're in another country, uh, one where, for instance, Apple, um, Apple servers are in control of the state, like China, in the US, it's easy to say that this is searching for the worst of the worst, right? Mm-hmm. In other countries, the worst of the worst might mean something very different. So it might be that images of memes, I mean, this is, people often go to this as a, as a kind of, they're going to ban memes, mm-hmm. <laughs> tends to be a thing that people get nervous about. But in reality, there are images and things that are shared on on online platforms in authoritarian countries that are illegal that in the US would be completely fine right i mean right. In, in thailand you you can't make fun of the king like you right. can't joke about the king it's illegal and china has done a lot to eliminate the sharing of certain photos of resistors of all sorts of things and other countries have as well And in this instance, if you can imagine having an iPhone in a country like that, where you take a photo or you just get a photo shared to you or you download it, you know, you're you're on a website that has a picture of the Tiananmen Square Mm. tank man and you download it to your device and it gets uploaded to the iCloud because you've got that feature set up. And suddenly that could, that famous photo could get an alert sent to the state government that you have that photo on your phone. So in the moment right now, you know, this isn't particularly concerning to us in, in terms of th- this specific feature in terms of um, the danger it causes to, let's say, encrypted communication. That fear is <laughs> for a different feature that they announced. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're doing that too. But in this case, I think there there is a serious concern that, you know, as you say, you buy your phone, the phone is supposed to work for you. And in the US, adding a database to your phone that checks against CSAM might not seem like a big deal, but in other countries, it certainly could be. And um, it is a, a serious, I, I mean, Apple is, there are two ways to look at end-to-end encryption and encryption generally over the last few decades. The first is that Apple is kind of the Alamo of companies in that they, you know, they're still defending privacy, right? Yeah. That's kind of their, as you said, they, they've done a big push recently with advertising that, you know, what happens on your iPhone stays in your iPhone. And you could see this announcement as, you know, the Alamo has fallen. An alternative view is that actually over the last 20 years, more and more things have become encrypted. Our communications are, are far more encrypted now than they were mm-hmm. in the past, right? You have access to signal, you, you know, iMessage is end-to-end encrypted, at least right now. Right. So people are upset because we've been heading in a specific direction, I think, that you can look at in two ways. One, that we're losing the battle and Apple is going to be the final kind of victim of that loss. And But the other, the other way to put it might be that we've actually been winning the battle And if Apple gives up as kind of the vanguard in protecting our privacy, that could signal to other tech companies that this is the direction we're headed now. And it's it's a real uh, U-turn for encryption. Well, so here's here's another way I look at that 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 same issue for me, and I and a a much more practical viewpoint for a publicly traded company that has shareholders and whoever to and governments to respond to, and that is these companies are legally required to report these things if they come across them. And so I understand that if I were trying to store these illegal images, horrific images on one of Apple's servers somewhere in the the cloud, that they they would not want that. In fact, they'd be legally obligated to do something about that. And so you had said that iCloud is not encrypted. Actually, I think I know what you meant. It, it is encrypted, but Apple holds the keys. So that's, so, right. Yeah, so that's the, right. It's encrypted in terms of if a hacker gets in there. Hopefully they would see garbage. But uh, if Apple wants to with a warrant or for whatever reason, they can fully access your stuff in the cloud. Um, so it, it, you know, I understand. And actually, and that is the way this works too, because it, until and if you up, upload to iCloud, nothing is triggered. So I can understand where they want to keep this off their servers from a legal standpoint. And so therefore they want to enforce that. But to do it on my, to do it on my device just somehow feels, feel, feels wrong. I, but 
anyway, let me get to the actual question behind that, this comment. And that is what, 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 (laughs) I mean, it's a good, you're making a very good point though. I think like there is a legitimate kind of disconnect between the people who really do appreciate Apple and Apple products and what Apple's doing here, which is taking a bit of your device out of your own hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how, how, how does the fourth amendment jive with our individual rights to privacy? Like if, if I, if, if I am technologically capable, I can encrypt all my images before I upload them to all these services. And the ones that are just scanning the cloud will never see them because I've encrypted with my own key. They can't get into them. So that is my right to privacy that I'm asserting through technology. And they actually technically wouldn't have a way to search that stuff, but we allow that in this country, but there's still a, there's a fourth amendment. There's other legal things too, where they, where, where do those two rights collide? Where it's, it, you know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the difficulties I would say, and, and I, I am, I must say off the, off the bat that I'm not a lawyer. I just follow the advice of lawyers at EFF. But one of the things that's really complicated in the, in situations like this is you have these enormous companies that wield the power of, of, you know, of many nations at some level, but are not state actors. And so in Apple's case, they adopted this scanning system entirely voluntarily. If they had been told to do it by the government, they actually, which, you know, we can go back to San Bernardino, Mm -hmm. where the government really looked towards Apple for hope that they would break their encryption and introduce a backdoor essentially so that they could give uh, the FBI access to a terrorist cell phone. Um, and a- Apple said, no, we won't build that back door. If the FBI had had ordered them to, they, they, they might've had a case against it. In this instance, because Apple is not doing it as a result of a government mandate, uh, they're fairly insulated from constitutional legal problems from what I understand. So your fourth amendment doesn't really apply in this case because Apple is a service provider mm-hmm. Not a government. Right. They're, they they are on the other hand, though, searching your data on behest, you know, at the behest of the government mm. via NICMIC's database. NICMIC isn't actually a governmental entity, right. but there's like a real question as to whether that's true because they were founded in 1984 through an act of government and have been given more and more power via various legislation. In fact, then Senator Joe Biden introduced an act many years ago now that kind of made it required for companies to do what you're saying, where they have to report this Mm. information if they find it. So Apple has a lot of legal protection here from its users because it did this on its own. And unfortunately, your ability to complain to Apple about this is limited at some level to your ability to switch to a different company. So, okay, even if here's the other point of this that, that kind of, I guess, bugs me a little bit too. And even if this technology was perfect, would it actually, would it really solve the root problem? I mean, you know, what about all the pictures that Nick Beck doesn't know about? I mean, <laughs> what about the original, sure. what about the actual original abuse and the picture taking in the first place? I mean, it's not stopping any of that. And, and, and Apple's basically already told us how to defeat the system. I mean, if, if, if I'm trafficking in these horrible images anyway, I'm probably pretty savvy, or if, if I'm not, I'm going to get caught really quick, about how to do this stuff. And Apple's basically just told me, as they rolled this out, how to not get caught. Don't do more than 30 of them. Don't upload them to iCloud, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we're hand-wringing over all this stuff, but even even if it worked perfectly, it, is this really going to uh, solve the root problem? Well, I mean, no, of course. Unfortunately, I mean, you can't, you can't fight a social problem with a technical solution very mm-hmm. well. And you're, you're absolutely right that this is essentially low-hanging fruit, right? And it's important low-hanging fruit. I mean, people trading and selling you know, thousands of, of CCM images should absolutely, <laughs> if, if caught, be tried and, mm-hmm. and what have you. Yep. Um, there's no question there. And I think that the kind of child protection organizations would love to. So if you, I could quote Nick Mick here, Nick Mick has a lot. I mean, Nick Mick's goal is to the world of CSAM. It's that's impossible, of course, but um, 
to do that, they would like there to be a lot fewer places for criminals to hide. And that includes encrypted messaging. They recently, I think just a, maybe just a week ago, uh, were quoted as saying that companies shouldn't implement end-to-end encrypted communications for any users who are under 18. Oh, wow. Right. So, I mean, you've got on the one hand, your, your very realistic and accurate point that this isn't going to solve the problem which is true. I mean, there are so many reasons that that's the case. Just to name a few, the majority of CSAM, from what I understand, is produced by parents, uh, which is a horrifying thought, but it's true. And, you know, it's, there are always going to be places to trade and and share this kind of material. And it's, it's, you know, kudos to the companies and, and the, organizations that are trying to limit that sharing, but this is a social problem. And it's, it's, and I think everyone agrees that this isn't going to solve it, you know, ultimately. Um, But if you can make it difficult to share these photos, if you make it easier for people to get caught, if you make it harder for them to get found, I can see how, or, you know, harder for them to hide. Mm -hmm. I, I can see how people think that, that this might make a dent in this problem, but you know, in, in reality, I think, as I mentioned, you know, 70 million reports, 9,000 arrests, and even those numbers are probably a little bit skewed, given that they come from the Department of Justice. It's the problem here isn't necessarily that there aren't enough reports. <laughs> there, <laughs> right. there are a lot of reports of CSAM. It, it's not a we're, we're swimming in them, unfortunately. And so, you know, if you if you talk to companies like or organizations like UNICEF or um, Child Rights International Network that focus on child rights from a more human rights perspective, they have different ideas about how to solve mm. this problem. And it mostly revolves around communication with young people, education with young people, complicated things that you can't solve with an algorithm. Right. Unfortunately, Apple announced actually, as you said, three different technologies that were similar, but they didn't do a very good job of distinguishing them when they announced it. And it really confused the whole message. And they had a lot of the backpedaling they did was in describing these other systems. And I know that EFF has got some opinions about those as well. We haven't discussed them yet. So let's do that now. Uh, What were the other child safety features that they were going to do? Because some of those were more proactive, which actually would have, you know, addressed some of the issues we've already brought up with the CSAM uh, database. Describe for us what those other technologies were and, and where EFF came down on that deployment. Sure. So there, yeah, like you said, there were three features. Um, the first one is kind of boring. And, and by boring, I mean, no one really is upset about it. Um, it essentially makes it so that it's easier to access you can basically use a voice. You can tell Siri if you're being abused is I think really mm. the way, the way I understand it. It's a, it adds features to um, Siri to make it easier for young people. I, I believe to, you know, ask for help. And I'm not mm. sure exactly how that works, but sure. You know, that's, that doesn't exactly in, uh, implicate privacy in any, in any obvious way. Yeah. The, the second big feature is what you, what we've been kind of discussing, which is the scanning of iCloud photos, comparing them to NCMEC database photos. And this, the third feature is actually one that I think a lot of people are okay with, and it's, it's scary that they are, um, yeah. because it's, it's in many ways the more dangerous of the, of the two. The way they've implemented this or what they've said they would do is if you, um, so Apple has a thing called a family, uh, family sharing plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it's so if, if you, um, there's a lot of different reasons for it, but one might be you have a 10 year old, they have their own tablet and they want to, you can like approve purchases for them and then send those right. apps to their tablet. Right. And you can limit their screen time, all sorts of parental controls. Exactly. All sorts of parental controls. And so what they've done is add a kind of parental control feature to iMessage or to messages in general. What this would do is uh, if you are under the age of 13 and you are using messages, the iMessage uh, application, to share photos either to someone or you're getting photos sent to you, those photos are going to be scanned as well. And this is a very different scanning than the than the NCMEC database scanning. This is a machine learning scan. This is the kind of scan that 
looks for explicit material uh, like they introduced on Tumblr many years ago, which determined that, you know, photos of chicken legs were explicit. Um, and, and so this would, once it recognizes that an incoming or an outgoing photo is whatever Apple determines explicit is, right, is explicit, it would notify the user, so the child on the device that the photo might be explicit and ask them if they are sure they want to either receive or share it with the caveat that if they do that, a notification will be sent to the parent account on the family mm -hmm. plan. And so the parent will not see the photo. They will get a, a notification, but the photo ends up stored in some way in a parental notification feature, mm -hmm. I believe on the child's device so that the parent can then go to the child's device and access mm -hmm. it. So that's what happens if you're under 13. If you're under 18, but over 13, and you're on a family sharing plan, Apple still notifies you that you're sharing or, or receiving an explicit photo and just says, are you sure you want to do this? So they've introduced what is essentially a speed bump. Um, and there, so earlier you talked about the kind of promise that, that, that Apple kind of has given its users. And one of those promises was around encrypted messaging. So iMessage is for all intents and purposes, probably the largest end-to-end -end encrypted chat program in the world. I'm not entirely sure that I'm right on that, but Apple has a billion users. So yeah, right. probably close. Yeah. This is a backdoor into messages. It's, it's not a backdoor directly into the messages themselves, but it is adding a feature that lets Apple scan incoming and outgoing photos right now for young people. But mm. eventually those same concerns we had about other governmental requests to add things to what that machine learning is scanning for mm. could very likely occur. So the two problems, I mean, really, there's many more than two, but the two main problems here is that it opens a security hole in, in iMessage. And secondly, it actually <laughs> very dangerously creates, as I mentioned before as well, parents are the most likely both producers of CSAM and abusers of children. Mm. Now, young people, if they share or receive something that is explicit and this feature is turned on, whatever explicit means to Apple, their parent would be notified. And that has all sorts of ramifications for the safety of young people, especially young people who are LGBTQ and maybe aren't out to their parents mm -hmm. or young people who are in abusive relationships with their parents. So this feature intended to reduce grooming and sexploitation and frankly, consensual sexting, which is a different problem, mm. could very likely lead to danger for young people. And that's before it's even, that's at the top of the slippery slope. When we get down further down the slope, then we have other countries adding more things to this and expanding its use beyond young people and making it affect every single user of an iPhone. Right. And, and that's another aspect of this that I think kind of bugs me personally. And that is that for, for a lot of times in the past, Apple has been going to great lengths to engineer themselves out of these problems, meaning they have, by making things end-to-end -end encrypted, by giving the power to the user to, to, to do that, they've actually made it impossible in some situations, at least for, to turn over information that they don't want to even have to ask the question. And this just seems to me like they are anathema to that. They, they are, they are, building in the technology that would allow these things to happen and only through policy, not, I mean, the technology is there to be abused, but they have made policy statements saying that they won't allow it to be abused. That's very, very different than their previous approaches, which has been, if we engineer it such that even we don't know, like even the fingerprint and the face ID, they engineered those things specifically so that it would stay on the device. They would not have any access to them. They would not be uploaded. Your, uh, you know, your biometric information is on your device. Again, sacrosanct. You bought that device. It's your device. It contains in a way that even Apple cannot get to that information. They engineered themselves out of that problem. They couldn't turn it over if they wanted to. This is a different take. This is them. I think they're trying to thread a needle. I think they're trying to walk a fine line. I get where they're coming from, but it's fundamentally different in that they have made it technologically possible to do other things that could very well be abused by uh, other governments or uh, any, you know, hackers or, or the things in there only via policy. Are they saying that it won't be abused? I could not have said that better myself. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, I, I think one, one question people might have is why is Apple doing this now? And the point that was made recently to me, um, again, from Erica Portnoy, our technologist is 
you know, Apple is so good at coming up with technical solutions to, to difficult problems. And there's a bit of nerd sniping, I think, that happens <laughs> where if you tell someone over and over again, which is what NCMEC and what the FBI and what the DOJ have been doing, we think there's a way for you to nerd harder and just solve this in a way that's privacy protective. You're going to end up trying to build that, that system. You know, I mean, if, if Apple is very good at what they do in many ways, and they thought they were doing a thing that was privacy protective and would also solve the problem that would both right. please the DOJ, the FBI and the privacy groups. In this case, they were wrong because exactly what you're saying. They're technically, it's a very smart system, but socially and policy-wise, it leaves a huge hole for changes down the road and lots of problems um, that we only have Apple's word won't happen, you right. know, a year from now or two years from now. All right. Well, as we wrap this up, I got a, a couple questions about where we go from here. So Apple has bowed to this pressure, this pushback, and they have decided to study this further, um, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know, we'll see what that means. I'm sure there's a lot of marketing as well as technical stuff going on there, but, and, you know, realizing that the, no matter how they different, how they explain this, we know we we understood what you're doing. It's not that we don't understand; it's just we don't like it. And I think it took them a while to mm-hmm. get that, but they finally got that. So, where do we go from here? How long is this delay? Do we have any idea that we're going to see this again? Do we? How likely is it to change? Are they are they directly, for example, are they, are they talking to you guys directly now? Is there now a communications with EFF or similar groups where they're actually now that this is out and you know from a marketing standpoint, it's not a secret anymore. Are they are they actually finally engaging with groups like yours to see if they can't tweak the solution? And if so, what would you tell them? I am very afraid that this announcement of the delay was a marketing tactic. Now, uh, I can I'll quote Gizmodo, a Gizmodo story that said this has been a public relations nightmare that is uncharacteristic for Apple. Mm-hmm. And they've got a couple of those happening at the same time. They've got an issue with pay equity, an issue mm-hmm. with harassment, two things that are, you know, problems all over all over the, the tech world, but that you wouldn't expect to happen for a company that tends to keep its, you know, right. its employees keep everything close to the vest. So every September they do this big, big announcement. And my impression is that they want to sell some shiny new iPhone 13s. And it's harder to do that if they also have to go on a stage and talk about this thing that maybe... I mean, there won't True. be people in the audience, you know, but in theory, right. if there were, they might get some booze. They don't get a lot of booze. Right. So I think that they said, I think that the people in charge of the profit said, we need you to bury this real quick. And they did. And what that means going forward is really unclear. We haven't spoken directly to Apple since this announcement that I know of. I mean, we might have had a few emails back and forth in general, but we don't know more about this delay, I think, than anyone else does. That being said, because Apple has announced that they would like to get more feedback from researchers and, and other groups, we are putting together at least one session for the public and and companies who are interested in attending, like Apple, with voices that are less commonly heard by Apple. Apple spends mm. a lot of time talking to NCMEC. NCMEC has an employee whose job it is basically is just to talk to Apple. And so we're putting together a, a small event where we will bring together some voices of child rights advocates, LGBTQ folks, um, crypt- cryptographers, and people that Apple has uh, kind of ignored in this process. And we'll do that probably next month. Apple, we think, will probably pay attention to that. And that will be partly to air our grievances and partly, I think, to talk about the path forward, whatever that looks like. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an obvious one. We would love it if Apple just said, you know what, my bad, <laughs> we're yeah. dropping all of this. Right. I think that the reality is that we won't hear more about this plan for at least several months. And when they do reannounce it, um, I would guess that only half of it will exist in the future. You know, I don't know which half, um, but I think that they might try to kind of negotiate a piece between the FBI and NCMEC and privacy groups. And that's what they're trying to do in the first place. But they realize that 
you know, we're a little bit louder than they thought. So um, we're hoping, I mean, we've had a huge protest and a huge number of people have signed signatures. We flew a yeah. plane over Apple's yeah. headquarters. Yeah, I saw that. That was, that was very cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're really proud of the number of people who spoke up about this and, and have been concerned. And I think it really surprised Apple. So I, I don't think this has gone away, but I don't think, I don't think we're losing. I mean, Apple is on their heels and encryption is, and privacy is, I think, more important than ever. WhatsApp's just announced encrypted backups, I think, literally today mm-hmm. or yesterday. Mm-hmm. So the battle is raging for privacy. And I think the company you know, that, that continues to protect user privacy will be the one that wins, whether or not they're in the same category. You know, Facebook and Apple are, are both, they both have different approaches to privacy. And Apple would certainly not want to be seen as having a more lax approach than Facebook. So we hope that they will do the right thing going forward. All right. One last question. And that is just kind of more generally, if, if somebody out there wants to you know, get more involved either in this issue where they might want to apply pressure to Apple or perhaps their representatives uh, on this particular issue in this in this technology, or if they even more generally just want to fight the good fight against child sex abuse, uh, do you have any recommendations for what people might do if they want to somehow get involved? Sure. So I think if you're just trying to get more information about this issue, you know, there's lots of lots of talk about it. There's plenty to read. Um, we've collected quite a bit of that information, both from EFF and elsewhere at EFF.org slash Apple. Um, you can also sign the petition that mm-hmm. we've put, put together yep. there. Now, that being said, we've already delivered 60,000 petitions to Apple. I don't see us, you know, adding Right. Uh, we will certainly continue to mention the number as that number goes up. So I'm happy for people to sign that petition. But I think at this point, what really helps is supporting organizations, you know, not just ours, but the Center for Democracy and Technology, mm-hmm. um, Fight for the Future and other orgs that yeah. have really been pushing back on this and just staying aware of what Apple does next and, and really, you know, Maybe hold off on on buying an iPhone, um, the next big iPhone, um, for a minute, and see what Apple decides to do here. Because, um, you know, not to say that you should boycott them, but you know, there isn't a lot of ways to apply pressure, um, frankly, as a as the consumer in this in this field. So we're hoping that Apple will, you know, listen to reason. I don't know Tim Cook's email address. Uh, he probably doesn't read his email, but if you want to email uh, yeah. <laughs> executives, I believe Fight for the Future has uh, some emails up on their site. Mm, okay. And when it comes to you know child protection, I, I think the the organization that I've been really uh, intrigued by lately is 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 CRIN, the Child Rights International Network, which is mm. a UK based organization that focuses on child rights from a human rights perspective, meaning mm. they take privacy into account. Oh wow! Um, yeah. And they you know, when you when you think about privacy uh, for children, it's a little confusing, but they make the point that, you know, especially in, in, in third world countries, children having private communications may save their lives uh, when mm. it comes to governmental, you know, governmental pressure and, and uh, censorship and other things. So they, they're, they're a good organization to check out. I admit that I don't have a ton of other references, mostly because um, that's not what EFF tends to do. Right. You know, our, our job is to look at the tech. But I do think that coming up, uh, we're thinking early October, we'll probably have this event uh, that will bring together some of those voices and they'll talk a little bit about what to do going forward and how other people can help with this issue. And I think that might be a really nice thing to tune in for folks who want more information as well. Well, I will be on the lookout for that for sure. And I will make sure the audience knows about that when that comes up. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is a really dicey topic (laughs) and uh, really glad to get your opinion on this. Really happy to talk about it. Thanks so much, Carrie. Thanks again to Jason for coming on the show. And for you patrons out there, be looking for some bonus content from uh, from Jason here in a little bit. We talked about a little different subject uh, that I captured and uh, we'll send out to the patrons on our private podcast. Now, Jason mentioned a couple things I want to come back to. First of all, he mentioned that the EFF is going to be putting together an event you know, where they'll bring together experts to talk about this Apple feature and, you know, other proposed solutions to child sexual abuse. And since uh, since that interview, they have scheduled the event. Uh, they're calling it the Perspectives on Encryption and Child Safety. That event will be on October 12th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, I've already registered for this event. You can register for it, too. 
Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's pretty easy to remember. You can just go to EFF.org slash perspectives, and that will take you to the place where you can find out about it and sign up. It's totally free. Jason also mentioned that they had a petition, and it wasn't just from EFF, the Center for Democracy and Technology and Fight for the Future, and several other groups got together to put this petition together. They did turn in the first set of, I think he said, 60,000 signatures to Apple, and Apple's already backed down, but they are still accepting signatures for that. And as Jason said, they're going to keep that tally running uh, so that you know they can show that a lot of people care about this. So if you're one of those people and you would like to sign that petition, I did. Uh, and I would encourage you to, uh, if you feel as I do, there's a link in the show notes for that as well. And he mentioned several other groups. He talked about Fight for the Future. They've got a recent article on this. I put a link to that in the show notes so you can jump over there and see what that's about. And he also mentioned uh, the Child Rights International Network, or CRIN. And I put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'd actually never heard of them. So lots of things to check out if you are interested in learning more. One more quick thing before we go. I got a really nice email from somebody named Sam who wrote an entire blog article on Medium about my book. Did a really thorough, very great review for the book. And he took an excerpt from that and he put it into Amazon. And so I will put a link to the full review uh, in the show notes. It's well worth reading. If you don't, if you haven't read the book or you've thought about reading the book, it's a really great review. And it kind of goes through a, a really long bullet list of all the topics I cover, which <laughs> even me reading it as the author going through that, I'm like, wow, I, I covered a lot of stuff. So anyway, it'll give you a good flavor of, of the book. Um, so, but let me, let me just read this Amazon review, which is an excerpt. And if he gave it five stars. Uh, thank you very much. And he's, uh, the title was Computer Security and Privacy for Everyone. And he says, this is the one book I recommend to my non-tech savvy friends for them to learn essential computer security and privacy. Honestly, even if you're a techie, this book is still great to check your fundamentals. Kerry Parker does an amazing job simply explaining essential cybersecurity and privacy concepts. He structures each chapter with a series of explanations followed by a checklist of recommendations. This makes it easy to follow through and actually make security and privacy-focused decisions based on what you learn. In other words, he teaches you the why and the how. This makes it a great book for friends and family who need to learn the fundamentals. The excerpt above is based on a blog post I wrote because I loved reading the book so much. This book is a hidden gem. It's well worth your money to purchase and read cover to cover. Also check out his podcast, which covers current issues in security and privacy. So thank you so much, Sam, for that. And again, there's a link to the full review in the show notes. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, tune in next week for our news show. Plenty of stuff to talk about. It will also be the first podcast during National Cybersecurity Awareness Month here in the United States. And with that, I will be doing some special content, including a promotion where you can pick up one of those super cool Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons challenge coins. So stay tuned for more information about that starting next week. I've also got more interviews in the, in the pipeline, and I've got some really cool ones I'm trying to line up. So keep your fingers crossed that I can manage to, uh, to get those scheduled. But I've already got a really fun one coming up uh, next time that you're, I think, really going to enjoy. So that'll do it for this week, everybody. Thank you again for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. I'd love to see some more reviews out there on the podcast and the book. Get those COVID shots. Get those boosters when they become available. Help other people to get theirs as well. And until next week, stay safe. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.